All right, good morning everyone. Good to see all of you here, although it looks like we've got some people on vacation this morning. Uh, I know that uh, Grant and Jill are off in Florida getting a well-deserved uh, break and uh, getting some rest and got a great team covering for him in terms of uh, youth and some of the other things that are going on. So we hope they're doing well and getting lots of rest. And uh, there's others that are engaged in different things this weekend. So. Uh, I'm going to invite you just to bow with me before we step into the text, and then we will open up into one of those great uh, texts where angels fear to tread and no one dares go, but we'll do it anyway this morning, so uh, bow with me if you will. Father, thank you for your profound love and grace towards us. Father, we are humbled by the reality of your generosity and your grace. Father, we often feel the undeservedness of of our own sin and brokenness and our choices to live independent lives, and yet you've rescued us from that through the sacrifice of your son and opened our eyes to the reality that relationship with you has to go through Jesus, that we can't earn it or barter it or we cannot find any other way that will get us into your presence and put us in a position where you will accept us and allow us to belong to your family apart from your uh, resurrected Savior. We thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning to continue to deepen our thoughts. May it be an occasion for us to um, clearly deepen our faith and to stretch our thinking. We ask that you will watch over our hearts and you give us the challenge of what it means to think through your word and the implications for what it means for us. We thank you for this and give you thanks in Christ's name, amen. Well, one of the, uh, probably one of the uh, most challenging texts in the scriptures wasn't the one we dealt with last week, it's the one we're dealing with this week. Uh, We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we are going to uh, uh, deal with this whole issue of should women be able to teach in the context of the community of faith. Paul says some pretty strong things in this environment, in this context, and uh, it makes it a little bit of a challenge to understand. Uh, I already see, at least in terms of mine, I've got some of the references wrong, so uh, you'll just have to make that adjustment. It's not 1 Corinthians we're going to be in. It's going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, let me just read the text, then we'll try to set the stage for what we're going to deal with and then begin to walk our way through that whole process. He begins in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. She is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. Well, if there's any passage you don't want to preach on, it's probably this one. Um, There is, uh, this thing is so embedded with things that are part of the culture, uh, part of the confusion and the chaos of that particular church. Uh, it seems like all these new church starts, and it doesn't, shouldn't surprise us, where Jews and Gentiles start farming, forming this new community 
that there is an enormous amount of baggage that they're all bringing into this environment and trying to figure out how they do life together. And it's no easy task. Uh, we think some of the issues we deal with are hard. Uh, these people are grinding it out in just incredible ways, trying to deal with the culture, deal with their different worldviews that they're trying to refine and trying to figure out what that means. Well, the church here is in probably uh, no better shape than the church in Corinth, and, uh, and Paul is writing to them and trying to deal with some problems that he has heard about and yet trying to give some sense of order to how they should operate as a local body of believers. Uh, most people would think of First Timothy as being how you conduct yourselves in the house of God. It's, he talks about fighting the good fight of faith, but he writes to Timothy as one who's sort of the, the church planner trying to establish how this is gonna operate and he uh, has some challenges in front of him. And so the context in which we're dealing with is no easy matter and we'll try to touch on that as we move through it. Obviously, the challenge comes to this particular verse in 1 Timothy chapter two where it's making this statement that we just read about that women are to be silent in the churches uh, clearly there are some contextual things there that we have to deal with. There seems to be a lot of upheaval and, uh, in terms of their relationships. You can tell by the fact that he instructs men to pray without quarreling or arguing. Seems a little counterintuitive to prayer, but that's one of the, some of the things that are happening. And then, of course, instructs the women that good works needs to be the focal point of the, the beauty of their life, not necessarily outward appearance. So, but the, the challenge comes as we begin to move into this, into how do we interpret statements that he makes here, especially in verse 12, where he says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Um, there are really two different ways to interpret this particular text, and there's a lot of complexity to trying to figure it out. So, um, I told someone last night, I was here till six o'clock, kind of banging through some of this and trying to figure out, I had like 27 slides that I was gonna share, and then I thought, well, you know, that's like six sermons, why, why would you do that to them? Um, so I'm gonna end up shrink-wrapping it uh, down to something that's a little bit more manageable. So you may find that I open up more questions and I answer questions in terms of this, but we'll begin to work through it as best we can. There are really two different ways to interpret this particular text. I've already read the one from ESV, but the, the traditional way that it's often looked at is this idea of um, two separate issues. I do not permit a woman, one, to teach, that's the first issue that is usually there, and then because of the grammatical language, it says not only to not teach or exercise authority over a man, and there's two issues. It's worded in several different ways. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority. I do not permit a woman to teach or to dominate over a man. There's different ways to render it. There's a number of English words that we could put to capture that. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the other way that this is often interpreted is not with two separate ideas, but simply one idea. And the one idea really comes down to what I've tried to indicate on the PowerPoint. I do not permit a woman to teach so as to gain mastery over a man. Now, I'm sure you would love me to talk about the use of the two infinitives that are here and that they work and function like nouns rather than verbal ideas and all that kind of stuff, and you'd probably be thrilled to death if I did that. However, we won't go there because I'd like you to still be awake by the time we're finished. Uh, 
But the idea here is that people aren't just making things up. There is um, a framework of understanding the grammar and the language that's used here to try to come to some conclusion and insight as to what's going on. As, as far as we deal with this, uh, why does Paul make this instruction? And which of these is correct in terms of understanding the nature of what he's talking about? Well, one of the things, if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, you'll, just, you'll get a bit of an insight into what the chaos looks like. He says, and I'm going to take the time to read it, I, Paul, urge you, Timothy, when I was going to Macedonia, that you remain on at Ephesus so that you may uh, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So he is running into a group of individuals within this church. We're not really told who, and there's not just men, but it seems like women are involved as well, who are teaching strange doctrines, and they're, they're speculating about how things should be spiritually, and they're getting into trouble over it. In fact, he goes on in verse five to say this. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things in which they make confident assertions. So they have the same problem that we have in our culture, where you got all kinds of people claiming to be teachers, making all kinds of assertions about things, and Paul's pushing back on these groups of people because he's convinced and knows that the things that they're teaching are not according to the scriptures. That their, their, their imagination is getting them to speculate about different things. It involves everything from the law to genealogies, to what we will see in, in certain contexts here, uh, that some believe that the resurrection had already happened, and that's one of the positions that they had taken. We won't get into the details of that, but that's one of the claims. The other thing that you need to notice about this is that there are no women who are specifically mentioned that are promoting these strange doctrines. In fact, when you get around to chapter one, verse 20, he will point out two individuals, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who he says he is delivered over to Satan so that they will learn not to blaspheme. So Paul takes these issues so seriously and these doctrines and speculations so seriously that he calls it blasphemy. That these basically rail against true doctrine and the true teaching of God's word and he's not gonna tolerate it. And so there's a place for him to push back on here, not based on just him, but the authority of God's word. Now, the obvious question here, which we're only going to scratch the surface on, is the idea of what does he mean when he talks about exercising authority? What's the true nature of prohibiting women from teaching uh, or exercising authority or doing both or whatever it happens to be? And why does Paul then pull the rug out from us by appealing back to Adam and Eve? I mean, if he had left that part out, it would have been very easy to just look at this purely as a cultural confusion and chaos and could have easily solved the problem in lots of different ways. But when he goes and jumps back to what happened in creation, then it's then everything's off, off the wheel kind of thing. He throws a wrench into it that's created most of the controversy that we deal with in this particular context. 
The language, the Greek language here literally means in terms of this idea of exercising authority to control in a domineering manner. It has about the idea of controlling or manipulating, so the idea is to control in a dominating manner is often expressed metaphorically as someone who gives orders to somebody. Uh, they're kind of giving demands or expectations. Um, the other idea is that it's about manipulation. Someone who's trying to coerce somebody else into buying into an idea, which might give us reason why he jumps back to Genesis, because that's kind of what unfolded between Adam and Eve. In any event, the idea here is to oppress or almost to intimidate, to really put a lot of pressure on an individual to accept a position. If I was to summarize the statement according to the, those who would say there's just one idea here, here's how I would express what he is saying, and I think it's close and reflects accurately the idea. What Paul is saying is, I do not permit women to try and control or dominate men by the way they teach. That's sort of the one idea concept. Literally, it would be, I do not permit women to teach with a view or a purpose to dominate or control men. The other way is, I do not permit women to try and exercise dominance over a man by the way that they teach. So the argument becomes, this isn't really a prohibition against teaching, it's a prohibition about teaching in sort of a, a bad way, with this whole purpose of trying to manipulate or control individuals. Well, First Timothy 1 would seem to indicate some of that might be going on. The, the problem there is that he doesn't identify any women. It tends to be driven by men, and so we don't know how involved the women are in this process. It's not to say that they're not involved, but it's, it's a little complicated. One of the, uh, Linda Belleville, who uh, writes about this, summarizes this, it this way. The women at Ephesus, perhaps encouraged by the false teachers, were trying to gain an advantage over the men in the congregation by teaching in a dictatorial fashion. The men became, uh, response became angry and disputed with the women what they were doing. This interpretation fits the broader context of 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, where Paul aims to correct inappropriate behavior on the part of both men and women. It also fits the grammatical flow of 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, and says, let a woman learn in quiet and submissive fashion. I do not, however, permit her to teach with the intent to dominate a man. She must be gentle in her demeanor. Paul would then be prohibiting teaching that tries to get the upper hand, not teaching in and of itself. Now, there's aspects of that that I actually like. That there's elements of the idea here that, hey, yeah, it makes sense not to allow people to be teaching, especially to manipulate or coerce other people, not by the truth, but some other means. Now, the problem, however, is that it does raise some questions. So the argument, let's say from an egalitarian perspective, has some of these points. Women have the rights and freedom to participate in worship according to their gifts. Wouldn't disagree with that. 1 Corinthians 12 says everybody receives a gift, and it includes teaching and evangelism and encouragement and all kinds of other things, and so that becomes part of the discussion. Women have the right to publicly pray and prophesy. We looked at that last week from 1 Corinthians 11. I didn't get into the weeds with that with you, um, but one of the things, you know, it's interesting when you deal with that text and these kind of issues, nobody has a debate about the issue of prayer. You know, 
you're allowed to pray and you're not. Nobody, nobody, we don't have those discussions regarding this particular text. Only the issue of prophecy. And I would tend to give the same weight to prayer and prophe- as, as I would to prophecy or the vice versa. The same weight to prophecy is relationship to prayer. Everybody's encouraged to pray. Everybody's encouraged to prophesy. Now that sounds like an authoritarian term, Old Testament or New Testament prophets. I think the concept in 1 Corinthians 11 is that the word prophecy is used to simply talk about declaring God's word or affirming it. And the reason for that is that in the same way that everyone would pray, everyone should be able to prophesy or speak about God's word or declare God's word or affirm God's word without it being an issue in terms of the community of faith. Uh, In fact, I might add one side trail here. If I look at passages like Colossians chapter three where it talks about, well, we'll get to it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to God. There's different ideas about that, but when it talks about us teaching and admonishing one another, the, re- the way that it goes about telling us we do that is when we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The underlying idea is that we're declaring God's truth and by singing those things together, we are teaching and admonishing, proclaiming God's word. It's in a sense prophecy in the sense of declaring God's word and we're teaching and admonishing one another just by collectively singing and worshiping together. And so I don't think it has a hyper sense of authority in terms of that particular context. I think it's the same as prayer. Hey, we're all encouraged to be a people of prayer. We're all encouraged to affirm and declare God's word. I think the word prophecy is used simply to remind us that this isn't our opinion, it's revelation from God above, and that's the nature of God's revelation in the scriptures, is it's prophetic, it comes from him, it's not our imaginations or our own schemes and ideas. Anyway, at the heart of this, as you begin to work through it, these are the things that it agrees with. The admonition for women, as the argument would go, to be silent is cultural and circumstantial, not universal. And as you work through this, it would be easy to come to that conclusion. The women at that particular time, at least from a Jewish perspective, wouldn't have had a lot of religious training. They wouldn't have been educated in terms of the Torah, or the disciplines, or understanding it. Um, but neither would the Gentiles. And so then you've got people trying to aspire to know stuff where they haven't learned what they need to learn. They haven't studied the way they had to. Number four, the roles and responsibilities ought to be established by giftedness, not gender. And that argument you've heard me mention before is that when it comes to even positions in the church, then the idea is those should be determined by a person's gift, not necessarily by their gender, whether they're male or female. And fifthly, the one of the statements, and this comes from Linda Belleville herself, teaching in the New Testament period was an activity, not an office, a gift, not a position of authority. Now, having said that, the idea of this one idea that these are really expressing, that it's, he's saying, I forbid women, or I permit, do not permit women to try to dominate men or control or influence them by the way they teach, sounds good, but it raises some questions for me. The, For instance, the first question is, is that all of a sudden this idea narrows to a very specific kind of activity. And it raises the question in my mind is, okay, so you're saying that women should not try to manipulate others by their teaching. 
are you giving permission for them to do it like when they're not teaching? Like, if we're just limiting it to when they're teaching, what about the wife who's at home and wants to manipulate or nag her husband into taking a position that she has? It seemed like there were speculations and all kinds of backroom discussions going on, so is it okay to do it that way rather than teaching? Well, that might seem a little silly, but then the second question is, uh, why is this only an instruction for women? Seemed to me in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the issue was certain persons are going around pursuing strange doctrines and speculations and all these kinds of things. The people specifically identified were men, and they dealt with some of them severely. They, they gave them over to Satan so that they would learn not to blaspheme. So why is it that he would limit an instruction like this just to the women? Because apparently it's obvious that there was men that were doing it too. I mean, when I took homiletics when I was in college, they might make a statement like this to all of us in the room. Hey, listen, integrity is the highest value of when you're preaching. This isn't about you spouting off your opinions, it's about teaching the word. But they said that to everybody in the room, not just like to me, because I preached a bad homiletical sermon to be evaluated by the professor. And so it, that question is raised with me, why is it that he's just singling out the women? Well, some of them might have been very aggressive trying to find a position of authority or trying to get them to adopt a certain position, but it seems a little bit prejudicial to simply tell the women that they're not to do this. In fact, the third question is, um, why wouldn't, uh, well, what's the scope of not uh, pardon me, what's the scope of not being allowed to teach? Does it mean she can't teach anywhere? I mean, there are certain positions in certain churches that say women should be heard, but, or seen but not heard, that the only person that a woman can teach would be children or other women, and so they can't teach in any context at all that involves men because this is disallowed. I find that to be a bit of an overreaction from the context of the fact that 1 Corinthians 11 says women can prophesy and pray. This is the one of the few passages that specifically says, and in fact the only passage that says they can't teach. So there's clearly some contextual, circumstantial clutter that they're fighting, but then the question is how far does it go? And the fourth question would be this. Would this why would this just apply to men? Would it also not be wrong for a woman to try to manipulate another woman with her teaching. Wouldn't that be wrong? Why is it just about men and not everybody else? And the final question that comes to mind would simply be this, wouldn't this also be true for men? Like if men were teaching in such a way they were trying to manipulate or control other people by the way they were teaching, I can't see that being permissible. That doesn't seem consistent with what Paul says about his own teaching and that he lives above reproach and it's integral. So why does he simply isolate these women? Well, there's a lot of, seems to be a lot of clutter in this church. Uh, fortunately, we don't have clutter like that, right? We don't have this kind of confusion. Good, I'm glad you laughed because you know, we all have our stuff to deal with, right? So, and, and it would seem to simply be purely a contextual cultural thing in that particular situation, except then Paul goes and pulls this stunt on us. He starts quoting Genesis chapter two. It's kind of like, Paul, this really would have been a lot easier if you hadn't pulled this. I mean, this really doesn't help the cause, so the question is, why does he do this? 
You'll notice that when he's talking about it, he says, well, the reason I'm giving you this instruction is that Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness and self-control. Well, that sounds a little demeaning. That's a little punitive to me, it sounds like. Okay, she screwed up way back then and women have been paying for it ever since. Is that really fair? Well, to be honest, whether we think it's fair or not is irrelevant. How we feel about it is irrelevant is what is he trying to say? That's all that really matters. Now, I wish I could come out and authoritatively say, I have the final answer, but it's not, it's not gonna happen that way. <laughs> because there are good people on both sides of this issue who have really struggled a lot trying to figure out what this kind of issue talks about, what it means. He says women are to be silent. They're not to exercise or teach and or uh, exercise dominion, try to manipulate men, which then becomes the question, is he talking about couples who are married or men and women in general. Well, remember at the beginning, I read back closer to verse eight and started there, and it talked about men and women just praying and how they adorn themselves, so it would seem to be broader than just married couples. So as you begin to work through this, what is it that we know? Well, let me show you how this gets fine-tuned in terms of the differences. If I go back to the creation account and sort of piggyback on these three statements that he makes about Adam, or actually about Eve, Adam was created first, Eve was the one that was deceived, and then this little side comment where she will be saved or kept safe through childbearing, what's, what's he doing? Well, if you look at an egalitarian position, you'll look back and say, hey, men and women were created equal. And from a complementarian perspective, if you hold that, uh, you will also see that they would affirm that men and women are created equal. The idea that Adam is created first, then Eve, from an egalitarian perspective, is kind of meaningless. Uh, there's a formula that, uh, you know, Christ is the first one raised from the dead, the first fruits, and then those will follow. So all their, the, the argument is, is this is just, a, all it's talking about is a sequence. Adam happened to be created first, and then Eve was created second. So it's no big deal. I'm going like, well, why is Paul writing this if it's no big deal? Like, why, why would he insert a piece of useless information if it has nothing to do with what he's talking about? And, and so what you end up doing is that, and from a complementarian perspective, Adam created, was created first, then Eve. They, that's significant. Now, if you'll remember, I went back and talked about Genesis 2, how God created Adam and put him on on the job training. He was teaching him about subduing the earth, that he was teaching him how to exercise dominion over the beasts and the animals by naming them, and then gave him a partner, Eve, although she doesn't get her name until the end of chapter three, a woman to be a helper for him that's suitable for him. And personally, that carries better weight than just saying, well, you know, Paul's talking about a sequence of how they were created, but it doesn't mean anything. That, frankly, doesn't mean anything to me. It doesn't change the way I think about the text. It doesn't help influence that. It feels like Paul's throwing in a meaningless piece of information that has nothing to do with going, what's going on here. And, and so, to me, the weight of this goes back to say, I think God gave Adam some responsibilities, and he was accountable to God for it, and he had these before Eve came on the scene, and I think under God's authority, he's accountable to God to make sure those things get done. 
the one place that we have explicitly stated back in Genesis 2 about God's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was clearly given to Adam when Eve wasn't there. And I believe it was his responsibility to help Eve know God's expectations, his word or his will, especially related to that. The fact that she's created as a helper, I think, is significant. I, think, I don't think you can ignore that. I think you have to have some way to respond to that. Well, if from an egalitarian perspective, the argument is, well, she's simply a partner. She's an equal partner in everything that they're doing. And the argument that I saw was that they quoted Genesis 2.24. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they become one flesh. And I pause for a minute, kind of like, well, I get that, but why would you skip over 2.20 where it says that God created Eve to be a helper? Why, why wouldn't you, I want her to address that issue. If you, don't, if you just ignore that, I'm going like, well, you, of course she was a partner, we understand that, but God gave her a designated role defined in relationship to Adam and she was to be a helper. So whatever role you give to Adam, which isn't explicitly stated, what is he, an implementer or a manager? or a coach, whatever, whatever term you would fill that blank in with, she's to come along and be a helper to, to work together to get it done. And we talked a little bit about the framework that at least one clear avenue of the mission that God gave them together, so they had one mission, they clearly had different roles in, in fulfilling it. And the idea of being fruitful and multiplying clearly shows to us that the man isn't the one who carries the child, it's the woman. God created her that way and it complements them. They're both indispensable to the journey but they have very different roles in getting it done. And I believe the same is true about subduing the earth and exercising dominion. It just, it's, there, I think there's a significance there but that's just me. And I haven't, my problem is I haven't heard a really good rational argument to just say we have to ignore that. The fourth thing in here is that, from an egalitarian perspective, they both had the same responsibility. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and exercise dominion. Well, I would think about that a little differently just based on what I said. That was the mission, that was the objective that they had together, but clearly, I think there's different roles and responsibility in fulfilling that. So, while egalitarians will say equal in role and responsibility, Complementarians will say different roles and responsibility to fulfill the one objective or mission that God gave them together. That becomes part of the process. Number six, the, the one statement is Eve's sin was being deceived and disobeying God. She did nothing to undermine Adam's leadership or take over that leadership role because the assumption is there was no declared or specific statement to say that she's under him and he has authority over her. If you look at it from a, I think a complementarian, maybe they wouldn't even agree with this. Eve debated the validity of God's command, embraced the commentary of the servant, decided on new convictions, coerced Adam to abandon God's authority, and Adam compromised his responsibilities. She was deceived and her sin also included Adam. And just to say that her deception was just a disobedience to God is like saying, well, her sin doesn't affect anything else. And I think it clearly affects and impacts what's going on with Adam. Now, whether you call, I don't, I don't care if you call it a hierarchy or not, 
But I clearly, she coerced him in such a way that he abandoned his responsibilities before God. And if that means an authoritative structure, so be it. If it doesn't, she's clearly influenced him to do something that God hadn't asked him to do. Now, I know all the sort of the grunt work falls on her, but let me give you two more. The curse that we talk about once you get on the other side of Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, is that the, from the egalitarian, the curse creates hierarchy. Basically, when you get to 3.16, there's the statement that basically says, your desire will be for your husband or be against your husband, and he will rule over you. So the one position says, that's when this hierarchy, these different uh, roles and authoritative structures were created. My, my contention would be when the fall came, I don't think anything new was created. It just corrupted things that already exist. So when you get around to this idea that the curse corrupted the people in those roles and now they act badly, which when to me would affirm that they at least had responsibilities, but now they're messed up in those responsibilities and they carry them out poorly. So when you get to the New Testament, the statement is, in Christ, everybody's equal, not only in being but function. Well, we've gone for four weeks talking about the different contexts in terms of Galatians 3 and Colossians 3, and I don't, I'm not quite there where it talks about this has to affect different leadership positions because it doesn't, isn't addressed that way. Now, what does this sound like to me? Well, this actually sounds like a really complex way to describe the problem that Adam and Eve had after the fall. If you go back to Genesis 3.16, your desires shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Um, and then 4.7, if you do well, you will, will you not be accepted? This is God's statement to Cain. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you will rule over it, or you must rule over it. So the idea is now they're in this battle, not only as, as individuals, because sin wants to crouch and start manipulating and controlling us and deceiving us that God can't be trusted, his word is unreliable, that I can make up my own truth and have my own personal convictions and do my own thing. Um, and the same thing for Eve, that if she does well, things are great. But now the danger becomes hey, if you don't do well, then the danger is is you're going to try to manipulate and control your husband, and his reaction is he's kind of trying to rule over you to stop you from doing that. That's the danger. That's what 1 Timothy chapter 2 sounds like. That here's people in the context of church where some of the women are trying to manipulate and control the men in terms of what they want to do, and the guys are pushing back. And Paul's stepping in and saying, all right, I'm going to come with a little more authorial tent. I'm coming with divine revelation and saying, here's the way you need to operate. Now, being that this becomes sort of the challenge in how we figure it out, let me take an impossible shot at the third statement in this thing, in this little sequence. Adam was created first and then Eve I don't think that's meaningless dribble from the Spirit of God. I think it's significant and it means something. I think the, the fact that Eve was deceived isn't, isn't now supposed to be used as punishment for the woman, but it's an explanation in terms of what's going on. And then it says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. 
Now, one of the argument, what's the problem with this argument is everyone just like avoids it like the plague. And as someone mentioned this morning, my comment is if I was really smart, I'd just skip this verse and we'd just finish with something else. However, we're going to step in the mud anyway. The, the danger with this is that the argument is, well, either you have to treat these three statements the same or you don't. You, you can't just deal with the first two and ignore the third one because this is the whole argument that Paul is using here for why women should be silent and shouldn't teach and exercise authority. So what does this mean? Well, if Paul's restricting the women in that particular church and then in that context not to be teachers, then where does that leave them? Well, someone might say, well, they're simply to be quiet. If they have questions, as 1 Corinthians 14 says, you ask their husbands at home and you learn from them and don't say anything. Well, I think that sounds a little condescending. Uh, the way we would fix that is to saying, well, they had a very different culture. Women weren't trained. They didn't have the opportunities, all those things. That's completely changed. So if we're looking at it purely from a cultural perspective, this would be irrelevant. And on that basis, I would come back to the text if we we're arguing simply from a cultural perspective to say, yeah, I think women should be allowed to be elders and pastors and in every sense of the way should do it. But it's actually not even talking about that. It's simply talking about the, the freedom to teach. It's not talking about positions in a church. So how would you interpret this? Well, let me go back to Genesis again, remind you of something I told you before. Genesis chapter three, there's two statements. God says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Then in verse 17, he uses the same word for pain related to um, Adam. Uh, he says, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall, be bring, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. So the idea of pain is literally not so much physical pain, but the idea of it, it really has about the idea of anxious toil or hardship, to be worried or to grieved. And, well, you won't get lost here, but the idea, I believe, is that men and women, now that the fall has happened, are going to sort of define their sense of self-worth and significance and security in different ways. And I think it exacerbates a gift that they both had beforehand. Now it becomes a problem. In other words, when Adam is told in toil, in pain, in anxious labor, you are going to do this occupational responsibility, I think what he's saying is now men are going to end up defining their sense of self-worth and significance based on work and labor and responsibility and performance. Inevitably, that's going to let them down because when we define it that way, if we fail, then we're worthless. But it also says that for the woman, her pain will be in childbirth. Now, it probably includes physical pain. That's why we have medical drugs to make it completely painless or something like that. Not an expert at that, just sort of witnessed it. So what does it mean for the woman? Well, in the same way that men's anxious labor and toil and finding significance and self-worth is in responsibility or in labor or work, 
it's focused here on terms of bearing children. And I believe that the focus here is about relationships more than it is about roles and responsibilities and performance and work. Now, I'm gonna make a really general statement about what that looks like, which is clearly not true in every circumstance, but the idea is, is that women still have a higher capacity, I think, to value and invest in relationships than often guys do. They're the one that goes through all the labor of carrying a child and bringing it into this world, and I don't think it's just the act of giving birth, but I think her anxious labor is not only just having children, but raising children. Because there's a sense of huge self-worth and significance about investing in her kids and helping them to get into this world and not get traumatized by all the landmines that are there. They have a capacity for that that I think guys, isn't, we're not quite wired the same. Doesn't mean it's bad, even though some of this comes as a result of the fall. I think some of that was in place beforehand. It just gets exacerbated after the fall. What happens to guys? Well, my sense of worth and significance is that I am a workaholic and I get raises and, I, and my performance gets recognized and I get bonuses and I show how competent I am and, I, and on and on it goes in terms of where our significance and self-worth is. Now, my wife and I go through this all the time. We'll go back and visit people and she knows every person to their fourth cousin and how they're related. I couldn't do that with my own family. Why? Because there's something about relationships that she has a much higher capacity and she's more highly invested in it than I'll ever be. Now, do I care about relationships? Yeah, I do, but I do it in a typical Brad fumbling, stumbling around the dark, can't remember your name way. And so now they both have this, this element of life where even in their brokenness, they together they can contribute well if they work together and they allow each other's strengths to come to the surface. And so let me illustrate it this way. What I think Paul is saying, and let me use a contemporary illustration. Because my wife's a school teacher, I'm more familiar with that. I read a story this week from the superintendents in the public school system that out of our nation's 13,728 superintendents, only 1,984 of them are women. Seven, yet 72% of all kindergarten through grade 12 educators in this country are women. There's a huge offset about the number of women that are training our children and raising them up compared to the number of men, but most of the superintendents happen to be men by a huge number. And the number one, there is about seven different reasons. Some of them were negative. Uh, often women don't get the same experience. They don't get the same education or opportunity. Some of the, those are the reasons why. But the number one reason that they said that women are not moving into those kind of roles, and I would make principals or superintendents, is because that's not why they got into education. I've had this discussion with my wife lots of times over 30 some years of teaching it's often come up just because of what we're in Portland and circumstances. I said, you know, you'd make a great principal. I mean, I remember back in Portland, she would, the principal would come to her for advice. She'd say, listen, tell me, what's going on here and what do you think I should do? I mean, she has a meticulous ability to kind of see through all the crud and, and know where to go with it. And I said, if you wanted to, you could probably be a principal or even a superintendent. And she goes, not on this side of heaven. 
And I said, why not? You could fix some things that are driving you nuts. And her response is, I don't want to deal with all that bureaucratic garbage. I don't have time for the finances. I don't have time to deal with adults that won't cooperate. I don't have time to deal with unions. I don't, I, that's not why I got into education. I got into education, and the things that keeps her fired up and going is I love kids. As a guy, I kind of go like, well, they take a few adults out and fix the problem from the top down, but she wants to train and speak into kids' life from the, from the grassroots up. And I, I, I really think what Paul is saying here by saying that women will be saved or kept safe through childbearing is that I'm convinced that he's trying to say, listen, you have more of an opportunity to impact more lives starting with children than you can even imagine. That the, the power of teaching is not the issue in terms of being in a position in a church, but you have the possibility for those that are, that are mothers to speak into ch- and, and the impact that you can make in their lives is astronomically more profound than being in a position in a church. Now, is that the best, I don't know. But it seems to me that what Paul is trying to do, and and you'll notice by his statement, she will be kept safe through childbearing if they, uh, who's they? Well, I, I think it's the kids. And he says, if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self control. If there's anything that keeps moms awake at night, it's how are their kids doing? Are they walking in the faith? Who's the best person to to teach them how to do that? Well, they're supposed to do it together, but in in, in the old version of family, where moms happen to stay at home, they are absolutely on point to be the most powerful influence and teachers of kids in instruction in terms of how their faith is in understanding a relationship with Christ. They're the ones to teach them how to love and what holiness looks like and self-control. And I think in this particular context, Paul is saying, listen, if I'm forbidding you to preach or to teach, as it were, in this particular context, that doesn't mean you can't teach. You have opportunities to do it in all kinds of ways. Now, some people have taken this and said, well, okay, women can teach as long as it's just to other women and other men, or women and children. I'm not sure he's even saying that. If a woman has a gift for teaching, I don't think it should be limited. I think if I'm sitting in a room and a woman's teaching, I'm not bothered by that. So the question is, how do you think through what's the limitations? Well, I believe that without getting into it, the one thing that changes my situation in this is 1 Timothy 3.1. Because then Paul immediately follows this by saying, if anyone desires the office or the role of an overseer, an elder, the presbytery as it were, that's supposed to oversee the body of believers, he makes it pretty clear that it needs to be a man. The husband of one wife. And it really doesn't have anything to do with what his spiritual gift is. It has everything to do with his idea of competency in managing his own home. It has everything to do with character and his commitments to being faithful to God. If you go over to Titus chapter 1, it basically says the same thing. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. 
If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery. But then he says this, for an overseer as God's steward. We have two more messages after this week and I'm going to deal with Ephesians 5 about headship and submission in marriage and then we'll deal with 1 Peter 3 as my final message before we go back to Romans 16 and finish off what's going there. We actually will finish Romans this year. <laughs> but the idea here, I'll just keep talking so that we can don't get all the... But the idea here, I believe, is, no, is, is not the issue, does man have authority over the woman to tell her what to do? I don't believe that's what the issue is. I believe that the man is under authority that has responsibilities to God and to his wife, not over his wife. And I believe the same thing is here, is that if it's true that even back in creation that God gave man under his authority, certain responsibilities to God and to Eve, God's going to hold them accountable to that. And frankly, the only thing that's keeping this from breaking wide open where everybody can take whatever role they want is simply this. If God's assigned men to take a spiritual responsibility to be faithful to God and to, for the people around them like an overseer is, he can't just decide, I'm not going to do it. He can't just neglect it. He can't just abandon it. And he certainly can't give it to someone else because even if someone can do it better, God's going to hold him accountable for what he does or doesn't do. So if that's true, that we as men have, are living somewhat under the authority of God, we're going to be accountable for fulfilling that role. Can women do those roles better? Maybe. But I don't want to get to heaven where God taps us on the shoulder as guys and he's going like, uh, so like, what have you been doing? Well, my wife wanted to like have more say in what, yeah, well, I asked you to do this. And frankly, in our culture, we hear this all the time and I hear it both ways. Wives are saying, I want my, men to t my, my husband to take some spiritual initiative. I, I need him to do this for me. I feel like I'm alone in this journey. I, I want him to like, be in this. I, I need him engaged. And we know all kinds of men who are sitting on the sidelines spiritually, and it not only is it an issue in terms of their marriage, but sometimes it's the same thing in terms of the church. Now, you may come out in a different place than I am. I understand that, and I'm... I understand there's great people on both sides of this whole issue of terms of whether women should be elders or not, but I believe that because of the way he deals with this, that right now I tend to, this is the card everyone's been looking for, I tend to be really strong on equality, but not to the point where men, we abandon the responsibilities we have. That's what I'm really fearful of is that God's called us to responsibilities, and if we're not doing that, as far as even in ministry in the church and with our homes, that's gonna be a really uncomfortable discussion when we stand before the Lord, and he's gonna say, listen, give account for sitting around doing nothing. And so, in spite of all those things, 
you may have a different posture on this. And that's worthy of discussion. I don't think it has anything to do with giftedness. I don't think it has anything to do with intelligence. I don't think it has anything to do with training or education. I think it has everything to do with the idea that God says, listen, Adam, I'm holding you responsibility. You need to communicate something. You have a responsibility to me and you have a responsibility to Eve, not over Eve. And in the ministry of the body of believers, I think the same thing. Men, we have a responsibility to God and to every person in this body, whether we're officially in elder positions or not, we have to learn to step up. We have to take responsibility. We have to care and protect. Sometimes push back on things that sound like speculations or blasphemy to whether they're the speculations of other people in the body or our spouse or even in our own thoughts. Because at the heart of this is God wants a body of believers where people live with a powerful sense of equality, even if we have different roles and responsibilities, that we work together for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If nothing else, I hope I gave you something to think about. Pray with me, if you will. Father, you know, there's a challenge before us, and I know there's some wonderful people who would come on a different spot on this than I do. I feel, Father, that in the, just in my own personal study, the issue is, is I, I often want to believe the other side. I want to be persuaded, and if I am, then I would like to have the integrity to change where I'm at. But Father, rather than attacking each other, we have to keep exploring what the scriptures say. Keep trying to understand it and understand the nuances of all that it means. And we know that's tough because these things are embedded deep within the weeds of the cultures that they're written in. And yet somehow the Spirit of God has put upon the heart of someone like Paul to provide arguments that seem to go beyond and outside of the culture and That makes it tricky and difficult to know whether he's talking about theological principles or he's just correcting a real mess. But Father, give us a heart that's willing to continue to seek your word and understanding not only what it means, but how it needs to affect us. We just pray for wisdom and insight as we continue this journey and we keep entrusting ourselves to the work of your grace, to your honor and glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.